Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here with my co-host, Marie Mayhew. Marie, how's it going? It is going very well. How are you doing? What's going on? What's the story? What's the haps? Doing pretty well. So, uh, listeners, we've got big news here. Jake, our editor, shaved the mustache. What? Yeah, which is crazy. <sighs> so now he doesn't look like the Unabomber picture. Is that it? Yeah, so he's been fired. He's gone. He's gone. Mustache is a requirement for us on editors. Uh, yeah, no, no. I things was are- joking because the one picture I saw of him and Jake, God love you, because I've never really seen pictures of you except on like social media. I'm like, oh, look, it's Jake. And I'm like, what? What is who is this hipster doofus? No, I'm joking. But he was like he had a mustache and it was very sort of ironic. And he, I think in the picture he might have even had the aviator sunglasses on. Yeah, and the hoodie and the bomb under his and the arm. Hoodie. So actually, I I had a I had a student or a student a friend. He used to be one of my undergrad students in the lab. Actually, so did Jake. That's that's how me and Jake know each other. But so this guy, uh, this guy Justin. So shout out to Justin having a great time at the University of Minnesota. He he came by and told me. So we we had a couple people over last night. So he came by and he was like, you know, I'm really enjoying the Unabomber series. You know, whatever. But he was telling me that when he was a freshman at Northeastern, I guess they had an art exhibit that was like famous typewriters throughout history. Yeah. yeah. And they had the yeah. Unabomber's typewriter. We will get into that. We will get into that. There is a huge thing that I was researching and finding sort of on the aftermath of this whole thing. And I am both mystified and kind of sickened by the um, by the commercialization, by sort of this like – uh, you know, this fetish, fetish, fetishization, fetishization. That is, fetishism. All right, Jake, roll the tape. Fetishism. Roll the tape, Jake. <laughs> Fetishization, fetishization. Fetishism. Fe- yeah, making making a fetish out of the Unabomber. Making a fetish out of the Unabomber, yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's <laughs> very, like, it's very prevalent, too. No, and it that, is. Yeah. But what was cool. It's, it's also, it's scary, though. I mean, a like, little, a little it's bit. scary because a part of me wants that typewriter, right? A part of me is like, oh, that's very cool. Like, wow, what, you know, like. Oh, it'd be then, super cool to have whoa, the typewriter or, like. You know, uh, his pencil, you know, but he's. That he hand sharpened with a knife or some some stuff like that, right? But it's also this is a guy who is not worthy of your admiration. But I don't I don't know it's I don't know if it's necessarily admiration though. It's like it's like having a it's like having a um I don't know, it's like like do you think it'd be cool to have like a painting that like John Wayne Gacy did? Like I think that'd be awesome. I think it'd be really cool to have that. It'd be scary. I think I think it's more I think it's more the the macabre nature of the article or the item, right? The fact that it's been linked to, but it is just fetishization, right? I mean, yeah, I, I mean, there's no it's, other reason to want a picture of a like a, a clown. No, unless a you're crappy into that. Painting. And if you're and if you're into that type of stuff, you know, I'm not holding it against you. There's no judgment here. I'm just saying that you know, if it's if it's you know, creepy clowns, okay, creepy clowns plus serial killers, you're getting into a little bit of a of a different territory with that, I would say. I hear you. I hear you. Yes. All right. So listeners, obviously this episode, this is the last in the Unabomber series. So this one might run a little long. 
just because we got a lot of ideas and thoughts on this, as you can already tell by our uh, our slight rambling there at the beginning. But it's going to be fun. It's going to be great. Our so, playful banter. Playful banner. So this episode uh, we have titled Getting Even because this is really where we left Ted uh, last episode. So yes. he began off this kind of spree getting even at the professors in the department in particular that he felt had slighted him when uh, last episode, Professor Sorry at Northwestern told him to go try and, you know, send that manuscript around and kind of see what professors thought of it over at the University of Chicago or the University of Illinois Chicago Circle campus. And when he came back, he was, if you remember, you know, Sorry says literally kind of shaking with rage and he said, I'll get even. It's kind of his last quote. And then the last time we saw Ted, he was at a a lecture series on gunpowder, which is a little on the nose, but kind of funny. So this, you know, he didn't waste any time. He did not waste any time he on getting waste even any time with that, with learning about it. And it's like the beautiful thing about that too, in a lot of ways is that, you know, he didn't, he didn't just read up on it. It's again, it's this student learning active. He, he attended a lecture on it. So the Unabomber, the first bombing, occurs at the Chicago. Well, so, okay. There's a pattern here that Ted uses on his bombs first off. And we're going to get into this. We're going to get into all of this really kind of deeply here, but in general, Ted's bombs are all made out of primarily natural components. So in other words, he uses, you know, I mean, obviously he has to use some electronic components. He didn't, you know, he didn't smelt his own copper down from, um, from, mineral and then you know turn it into the wire that he used or whatever and nothing kind of that extreme because again if you remember from the last episode david was the one that really did kind of the frontiersman thing ted yeah lived alone in the woods but he was just kind of living a weird hermit lifestyle there was a town that he biked to all the time he had people in town that knew him he went to the store he went to the library right Mm-hmm. You know, the image that we have of him living alone in the woods is a little overblown. But anyways, all of his bombs were made out of primarily natural materials and then electronic components that he could buy in town. And that made them really hard to track back to anyone in particular because, yeah. you know, they were he would use nails and screws that he he either made himself out of wood in some instances or any any parts that he used. He was meticulous about uh, removing serial numbers or any traceable kind of signatures or anything on them. Which is the, amazing. I mean, he did, he made his own glue too. Yeah. It was which out of anything that you could buy in bulk that would be hard to trace. It'd be glue. Yeah. It's not, I would think. it's not a suit. I mean, it's, they're made in these giant batches, right? So it's not like he could, yeah. it's not like it's the easiest thing to find. He's not using some specific type of, I don't know, paint or something. He's, it's Elmer's glue, right? But yeah, it's just, but Elmer's he decided, hey, let's we'll boil down hooves, right? Cow hooves and made it himself, which is which is sort of a strange. Out of everything you're going to make yourself, like man, that that seems like your return on investment is a lot of work. But yeah, he was again, he was a particular weirdo. He was a per- yes. particular weirdo, right? Very so particular. He had his he had his little peculiarities. The first bomb itself was. So he get he will become better at making bombs as time goes on. And you're mm-hmm. going to see that with the lethality of the bombs and also just the casualty list. So the first bombs are pretty standard kind of pressure bombs or, or uh, 
mm-hmm. kind of pipe bomb esque sort of things. So he would have a, a wooden box around kind of the internals of the bomb itself. The bomb would use gunpowder and matchsticks for his charge, and then a lamp cord that carried the spark from the starter over to the ammunition. The way that a bomb works in general is you have something that is combustible that'll that'll undergo a violent exothermal exothermal reaction. And when it creates that reaction, it'll also generate a lot of gases. And so the gases in a confined space will lead to an increase in pressure, which will eventually lead to the container itself uh, exploding and then shooting things out as projectiles. Mm-hmm. And that is the real danger of the bomb. It's the projectiles and the shrapnel and things inside of the bomb itself. It is not the pressure wave or the heat yeah, necessarily yeah. that causes all the damage, especially with a bomb like this that's relatively small. The first bomb that he sent was to the Chicago Circle campus at the University of Illinois. And the return address on it was at Northwestern. The package, like a lot of his bombs would be, was left in a parking lot in the hopes that someone would find it and then forward it to the correct person on campus. Because, again, he was trying to think, how can I do this in a way that really puts me a couple of steps away from the actual bomb going off? His MO is definitely, you know, place it, let the damage be done, and then I can see the damage from far away. Mm Mm-hmm. So the package never made its way to the Chicago Circle campus. Instead, it was returned back to Northwestern and it exploded and injured a security guard who opened it mistakenly on May 25th, 1978. And that's his first bomb. It doesn't kill anybody, but it injures this security guard. Uh, or really, he's a campus police officer. Uh, Terry Marker is his name. Yeah. And really quick, I mean, the thing that I always found interesting about this too is that he documents everything in his journal. Yes. Very scientific method, right? So he he writes up, like, he will write up what happened afterwards or the, the improvements or the changes he makes. Again, total, you know, very much a scientist. On, on this, he said, uh, I hope that a student, preferably one in science and technology field, would pick it up and would either be a good citizen and take the package to a post office to be sent or would open the package himself and blow his hands off or get killed. I wish I had some assurance that I succeeded in killing or maiming someone. Yeah, not a nice guy. So, but it's like the amazing thing about, again, I mean, amazing being the thing that stretches credulity about this is that uh, his approach, that this isn't about something of value that he's hurting or that he's destroying, right? It's not, clearly he has no emotional tie to this or or no emotional tie almost to humanity at some point. Like he's going for a maximum impact of damage and he's making, you know, measurable changes to, to achieve that effect. Well, he's even, and that's what's so like, it's so removed that that's what to me is spooky. And Oh, yeah. he's he's even using the kind of social control that he'll write about in the manifesto. These ideas mm-hmm. that he's had, he's making he's making a bet that a person will find this, and instead of opening the package like society would tell them not to, they will right. be a good citizen, like he said, yes. and they'll return it to the to the labeled address. So he's even playing on the notion that you know, even that in itself is almost an experiment in social conditioning for him, which is really interesting. Yeah. So and what we're going to find with Ted's bombs 
is there is a, and this is true of a lot of serial offenders. Uh, it's harder to make that claim really concrete for serial bombers because there aren't honestly that many bombers that go this long without being caught. Mm-hmm. But Ted will, he'll have kind of a period of, of violence and then a, a slowdown kind of mm-hmm. a re, you know, a recovery period. And then he'll have another period of violence and then a recovery period and then a period of violence and then a recovery period. And sometimes those periods, the difference with him is those periods don't, they don't really follow the normal pattern we think of with like say serial killers where you get, you know, you have the first victim, then there's like a, th- a two year period, a one year period, whatever, then another two victims, then a little bit less time, then more victims, less time until finally they hit kind of berserker mode. With Ted, he is, again, it's so calculated and cold that you can see him make a change for a very specific reason that we're going to get into. But so anyways, right after this first bomb, he actually moves back to Lombard, Illinois, with his parents. He will take a job finally at the factory where his dad is working and where David is a supervisor. And so during this time, a really weird, there's a couple of really weird events in this time period for Ted's life. Yes. Just super, yes. just super strange. So Which this, could be, almost be considered escalatory had he not already decided that this was his course of events, right? That's what I think, too. It's like it's weird that he already had – well, not weird, but ironic in some ways that he started bombing and then there's also all of these other things that lead to more estrangement. You're completely right. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point that I, I hadn't thought of before. But, yeah, these are definitely kind of escalations in some weird way. Mm-hmm. So he's living with his parents and then he essentially gets a crush on his supervisor at the plant. So Ted at this point is 36 years old. His supervisor, Ellen Tarmichael, who evidently Ted thought was a total, uh, total babe. He fought, he just, he gets a huge crush on her and it turns into a friendship kind of, and then sort of into dating, but not really just kind of like, you know, he got to know her and it's the first woman that's ever given him the time of day, really. Yeah. And so David, David recalls this in uh, David's a quote from David on this is quote. It was a Sunday and he had gone for a walk. He being Ted, he happened to see her car. David recalled she was filling the gas tank. I don't know exactly what transpired. He actually went to her apartment and played cards with her and her sister and her boyfriend. Later, Ted came home. He was obviously in a really good mood. David said, He told me he had gone to see Ellen, that they had spent the day together and had played cards, and that some gestures indicating affection had passed between them. I was very happy about that, he remembered. I was very happy about that. He remembered something his parents had once said about Ted eventually marrying and losing his rough edges. They had two dates, Mrs. Tyermichael recalled. She said he seemed intelligent and quiet, and she accepted a dinner invitation in late July. It was a French restaurant, David said, and Ted ordered wine and he smelled it. He made a big deal of it, David added. He had a good time. Two weeks later, they went apple picking and afterwards went to his parents' home and baked a pie. That was when she told him that he did not want to see him again. I felt we didn't have much in common besides our employment, she said. Ted did a total shutdown, retreating into his room, David said. He also wrote an insulting limerick about Mrs. Tarmichael, made copies and posted them in lavatories and on walls around the factory. He did not sign the limerick, but his relationship with the woman was known, end quote. Now, listeners, we're a serious podcast. We take our work seriously. We tried to find this limerick for a lot of time. Yeah. I spent a lot of time looking for this dang limerick. 
Can't find it. Could not find it, which is a real shame because I bet it was uh, I bet it was weird. Like Ted is weird. Yeah. And it's so weird that that's how he acts out, too. And well, again, there's been. Yeah, it's it's that it's that it's that you do something and you let it sit and you wait for them to discover it. And then you're like, well, it wasn't me. I was I wasn't here. You know, it's that it's the same thing that he did when he was a kid with the explosions, right? And the pranks, quote unquote, where you set up something and then you can see the effect from far away, but it it just puts you, it, it almost dehumanizes the event or it depersonalizes it to such an extent that it's like, it's like a Rude Goldberg machine, right? Or a, what's another example? Like, I guess another example of it would be, you know, that old kind of moral uh, conundrum or question of, you have someone in the electric chair and then you flip the switch in the room. What if we just attach that to, you know, someone just the electric grid and it was some random person's house that night that when they flipped the switch, that person got fried. Right. At what point, yeah. at what point does the personalization of the crime itself, like does a person who flips the switch in person, they would, you would seem to think that they would have some kind of personal collection connection to that event and it would feel like they really did it. But if you're a thousand miles away over the phone and they say flip the switch and you do it, does did it really happen even? You know, for well, you personally? Yeah, and I think the thing that's interesting is that he tried to have this emotional connection with this with this woman. He was rebuffed. And instead of like getting mad at her or being kind of upfront about his emotions, they're all sublimated. And it's it's like, you know, we were talking about uh, a while back. It's like it's almost like he's the modern day version of an incel, right? Like he's got he's he's one of these people like a troll or like that just decides to lash out at women in because he's been hurt. Well, this yeah, this is kind of the mo- right? this is kind of the olden time, you know, angry yeah. Facebook message. Yeah, you know? or yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Except it's a limerick, and he's you know, but he has nothing to do with it. And it's sort of, again, it's like, it's weirdly enough that I'm sure that like you're going to get into like everyone else was like, dude, not cool, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so his his brother, so David obviously sees the limerick and freaks out, right? I mean, you can't be doing this. She said no, it's no big deal, whatever. Mm-hmm. But you can't do this. And actually, mm-hmm. David will say, so uh, David says this. And again, these quotes are coming from Prisoner of Rage, that amazing kind of magazine piece that was a long form piece. Yeah. So, quote, David confronted his brother. I was very, very angry, he said. Part of me was disappointed. He was so close to being integrated in the most primal right of integration. He had an interest in a member of the opposite sex. And to have him go back to this kind of angry, inappropriate behavior to the family, it was embarrassing, adolescent kind of behavior, end quote. And so David will actually tell him to stop with this kind of junk. And Ted reacts by putting the limerick right back up and, in fact, puts it above David's desk. And so David uh, fires him, Again, essentially. Perfect incel, right? Like, yeah. You, you, you try and rationalize. You try and use logic. You know, again, you're hurting your family. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting other people. And, you know, the most responsible thing, the most compassionate thing is to stop. Because what, what good are you possibly doing? And you double down instead. Right. You decide, you decide, no, no, my, my initial, my initial reaction was the right reaction. So he then, him and David get into a big fight, as you can imagine. 
And David decides, I'm sick of this. This is ridiculous. And he goes back to Texas. And then Ted, this part is not super clear if he stays or if he goes back to Montana right away. But uh, he will return to Montana soon. However, um, he then promptly sends another bomb. Now, just before we get to this second bomb here, he actually will write a letter to Miss Tarmichael later that has David says has elements of an apology, but essentially, essentially though says, you know, I blame you for what's happening or I blame you for what happened there. And then said that he had thought of about, about finding her and hurting her. So again, this is definitely an escalation here. And, and in fact, this might be the most, in some ways, this might be the most significant escalation where this is really the first time that he is act. you know, up to this point, he sent angry letters to newspapers and things mm-hmm. and he sent mm-hmm. the bomb, but this mm-hmm. is the first act of violence where he, he suggests, or, you know, it's so obvious that it's him. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's really present for this one. And, and so it's, it's, it's interesting yeah. that he would do it's that. It's interesting. Cause if there was ever a chance for like a reprieve, right? Like, He's home, you know, on one, on one side of the coin, you know, he's, he's, he's at home. He's surrounded by his family. He's got a normalizing job. He has stability. He has socialization. He's making sort of the right inroads. So there's should be this hypothetical combination of stuff that, that in one light would be helpful. Or could have could have set him on the right, not the right path, but could have, it could have. It, it, those are the things that you know you would you make an assumption would be something that would be good for someone, but they're not for him, right? That's what sets him off is stifling, you know, the stifling of, of being around the family and having the family dictate to him what's a norm, right? Having to be, you know, probably in a in a job that's beneath his agency, you know, having, having to, you know, having, having him put himself out there and be rejected. So all of these things are sort of like, this is what normal people want. I tried it and look what happened. Right. And it's, it's so interesting to you that this is almost, this is the kind of stuff you should be getting up to in like high school. Yes. Right. You work a He's crappy job, man. you work a crappy job at yeah. the foam factory you get, you know, you have a crush on someone, they turn you down, it doesn't go well, it ends kind of ugly, right? Ugly, and and you... You do stupid stuff. You do stupid stuff, right? You send them an, a nasty poem or something, right? You Absolutely. Write, you, you, you write, uh, I don't know, Tarmichael's a butt on a tree or something, right? <laughs> like That kind of stuff happens, but, it, right. but not when you're 36. Not when you're, yeah, not when you're at the age where you are clearly should have much more of your, of your life together. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So in a, so again, this kind of, this falls apart in the fall of um, this falls apart in kind of the, the summer ish area or maybe not the summer, kind of like the early fall of 1979. And then um, a bomb is sent in May of 1979 over to, or rather, sorry. So the summer of 1979 is when it ends or early spring, I should say. So, um, 1979, a bomb is sent to uh, Northwestern university in Illinois again. 
And this one explodes and injures a grad student, uh, resulting in minor cuts and burns. Then November yes. of 1979, another bomb. Now, this mm-hmm. one is on board American Airlines Flight 444 from Chicago to Washington, D.C. It uh, doesn't result in anyone. It, I mean, it, it, it ends up in some smoke injuries, like oh smoke God. inhalation injuries. But it doesn't yeah. actually it doesn't actually hurt anyone. And then the next bomb comes in June of 1980. And this one, again, is in Illinois in Lake Forest. This one goes to the home of Percy Wood, who is the president of United Airlines. And it results in severe cuts and burns um, all over his body, over most of his face, disfigures him, you know, really, really does a number on this guy. And for what he actually had to say about it, too, from and this is from Harvard and the Unabomber, uh, Alston Chase has these has his reactions after every major event. After the second bomb, I'd hope that the victim would be blinded or have his hands blown off or otherwise be maimed. At least I put him in the hospital, which is better than nothing, but not enough to satisfy me. Well, live and learn. No more match head bombs. I wish I knew how to get a hold of some dynamite. Well, live, laugh, love. <laughs> right? What are you going to do? And it's what are you going like to do, Marie? His, Say love you. His, 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 um, yeah, his like turning the corner on like, well, now I know. Um, and then the third, okay, again, like he is putting a bomb in an airplane, which to me is, so these first two are going to an individual, right? Which are, is still hein- a heinous event. But when you decide to take down a commercial airliner, you have just made the move into domestic terrorism. Right. Right. I mean, you have decided that you are going to do something that is going to um, disrupt and terrorize a mass population. Right. Yeah, right. You've jumped you've jumped from you've jumped from targeted murder to mass murder. Yes. Right. And it's to me, it's like what's interesting, too, and in reading it and thinking about it is like the first two were to an individual. And then he's like, you know, I'm going for an airline. And he said, some of my notes, I mentioned a plan for revenge on society. Plan was to blow up an airliner in flight. Unfortunately, plane not destroyed, bomb too weak. Yeah. And so it's it's really with the bomb, the third bomb in that series. So at this point, he's done four bombs total. Mm-hmm. The first one in 78, and then kind of the quick succession, bam, 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 from May to June of, uh, from May 1979 to June of 1980. That 1981, going to Percy Wood, the president of United Airlines, mm-hmm. that is the first one that's truly, you know, truly dangerous in any significant way. That's the first one that would be considered really lethal. Yes. Um, was particularly satisfying because it was an immediate and precise directed response to the provocation. Now, contrast it, contrast it with the revenge I, ten, I attempted on the jet airliner um, that bothered uh, that bothered me in Montana. I felt uh, I long felt a frustration and anger against the planes after. Um, uh, after completing pre- uh, preparations, I succeeded in injuring the president of United Airlines, but he was only one of a vast army of people who directly and indirectly are responsible for jets. You imagine just being, being so mad at a plane that you're like, I'm going to get you plane. I'm going to get you plane. And he says this, this 
Thus, it felt good to be able for a change to strike back immediately and directly. Completely ridiculous. I <laughs> mean, and just like, holy smokes, like, yeah, it's serious. Me, there's just like, again, like you're not just a, a plane, right? Like he's mad at planes, which he's mad at planes because they made noise or whatever it is. But like, again, that is a mass commercial transit for not just the United States, but the globe, <laughs> you know, and you just tried to blow it up. And then you go after the president of one of the airlines. That's like the, the, the hockey stick angle of the curve of his trajectory of going from, you know what, like this is a, this guy is, this is a, uh, like you said, a murderer and needs to be, you know, and should be prosecuted and dealt with to, Seriously, something that's even beyond that is pretty steep, pretty yeah. fast. No, yeah, it, it ramps up. I mean, this guy's got some balls. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So the, this is the point with this, with the bombing of Percy Wood, and then the, obviously the airline as well. This is when the FBI puts together the task force that would give him his moniker yeah. Unabomber. Yes. Which he's labeled that because he is the university and airline bombing uh, suspect or the universal airline bombing case or Unibomb. At this point, he, the, the only clues they have at this point are from the bombs themselves and from his choice of victims. But again, he is being meticulous with these bombs. He is ensuring there's nothing, you know, nothing on these bombs that he is thinking consciously will give him up in some way. Although there are little unconscious things that are, that are going to be used to build a profile against him. Now you already know my opinion on profiling on this show. You guys already know what I think about it. Not super great. This is one case where the FBI really points to this one and says, this is the one where it shows that profiling worked. We're going to get into that claim a little bit here. However, the initial profile of the Unabomber is actually pretty good. The problem is that they throw it away. Yeah. So the first profile of the, of the suspect here. Is going to be so here. Okay, here's a quick rundown of the clues themselves. The bombs are made out of wood and have a lot of wooden components and materials. Sometimes they even have twigs and things taped inside of the bomb themselves. The guy also just seems to be generally obsessed with nature in some way. So, for instance, Percy Wood has wood in the name, right? Of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the other, uh, the bombs and things, the way that they're actually made. One will be inside of a book that is from Arbor House Publishing, um, which has a prominent logo of a leaf on the side of its uh, covers. There are other links to the wood angle as well, right? Um, he uses a, sp- a particular type of stamp, which is kind of interesting. Uh, it's kind of an old-timey stamp, mm-hmm. but he uses them in such a way that they're they're widely available. It's not very easy to uh, it's not really easy to track them around so to speak, right? And he's also very careful about how he's mailing things as well. Yeah. And they're inside wood boxes or they're, they have some wooden component to them. Absolutely. Yes. So what's interesting is he used some of these stamps in interesting ways. So when he just wanted to injure people, he would use a Frederick Douglass stamp. And when he wanted to kill someone, he used a Eugene O'Neill stamp. Eugene O'Neill $1 stamp. Yeah, which is just fascinating. Again, maybe it's just completely like it's his own intelligence 
deciding to toy with whoever's going to receive this stuff. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing that they find in all these bombs or in most of them rather at this point is a piece of metal or wood that has been stamped or etched with the letters FC. At this point, the FBI does not know what those mean other than them being a calling card. They think because again, he seems to be targeting technology centers and stuff that maybe FC stands for uh, F computers or maybe it means something mm-hmm. about him being a foreign diplomat or a driver of a foreign for a foreign diplomat because that is the logo or the letters that go on their kind of official uh, license plates for their cars. They also think maybe that he might be some kind of crazy environmentalist or a lumberjack or someone who has these kinds of uh, someone whose job is being taken away by technology was also something that they thought mm-hmm. in particular. Um, that's because, again, it seemed like he was going after the airlines in particular with these uh, two major bombs. So they had a couple of different things on these, but they really they really had not. They did not have a lot of clues. The only thing that they could say was that this, these were coming from the same person. Another big piece of the puzzle, though, there for is it coming from the same person are actually the design of the bombs. So Ted actually created his own and his own kind of particular design of the initiator part of the bomb. He was what was called a double initiator. And so it was, it was handmade. Again, it was designed by him. Uh, the FBI experts on, on kind of, you know, munitions and bombings would actually go on record and say that they had never seen a double initiator quite like this. And again, that would point to them that pointed them towards someone with technical skills, someone with the ability to engineer and build something. So potentially a mechanic, potentially someone with academic credentials, maybe. However, at this point in time, there are two really major competing, I, I guess, profiles, but ideas of what the, what the person might be. The first one is a potential academic, someone with a connection to universities, um, someone who is technically capable and intelligent enough to create their own kind of bomb. And someone with a, with really a fetish or a, a huge opinion, huge, huge thing about nature and anti-technology. That's the first good profile. That profile, pretty much, you know, that's not bad. That's right. That's it's pretty close, right? Pretty close. Pretty close. It that was be, the one that thought he was much older than he actually was, though, right? Yes. That will be thrown out for a profile that paints him as a relatively young mechanic or ex-mechanic, rather whose job at an airline facility was taken away by new technology. So again, an anti-technology viewpoint, pro nature, pro going back to kind of, you know, the land sort of view. Now, the one thing that all of these profiles did get right was that he had strong connections to the Chicago area, but that's kind of a no brainer, right? I mean, he's all of his victims have been in Chicago so far. Well, to, to, to train professionals like the FBI. Yes. Not to, you know, like I mean, me. Well, <laughs> right? yeah, sure. But, I you mean, know, yeah, that's that is like I think that that is that was they had the evidence to actually make that connection relative with some safety. Sure. So at this point, it's the 1980s uh, and him and him and David have kind of patched things up a little bit. You know, they're talking about, again, David living on the land some more and Ted going back and doing his own thing, too. And they've sort of made up somewhat. But Ted's relationship with his parents just can, just gets worse and worse and worse. 
So they patched things up. So it's the 1980s. David and Ted are patching things up. They're talking via mail, right? They're kind of being friendly again. But Ted's relationship with his parents just gets worse and worse and worse with time. So the parents would go visit Ted at his cabin. And then they'd think everything went you know, perfectly well. And then they'd get home to Chicago and there would be angry letters from Ted, you know, bemoaning them and berating them for what they did or what, you know, what, how badly they treated him when he was a kid. Right. And by the way, like them going to visit him in the, in the cabin is basically a one room. It's just one room. And it like, can't smell good. <laughs> it can't, like it can't be, it cannot be pleasant to visit him like this. No. And you just know? imagine listeners, your parents coming. If you decided to live in one room and dedicate yourself to some to some very esoteric thing, even if it was nonviolent. You're out in the woods. You're living off the land. Uh, you have one room. You have no. You don't really have electricity or anything else. Imagine your parents coming to visit and having that go well. Well, it's just it's just such a weird. You know, I mean, me and Katie are so yeah. paranoid when people come visit us because we we have been in those situations <laughs> where like you go over to someone's house Ooh. and they're like, you know, uh-huh. oh, we only use breast milk here. And you're like, what am I? What am I supposed to do? They do not. No, it's that's never like, happened. That's never happened. But you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, you. It's always even, like the taking something... the shoes off. Exactly. Exactly. Like, hey, we take our shoes off here, and I'm like, yeah, do. Yeah, okay. my. Well, I did not wear the right socks for this. You know. I was like, <laughs> I don't. Okay. Yeah. It's Paul's no. always like, what? Okay, we're taking our shoes off. Or does anybody know what they're getting themselves into? And I'm like, apparently not. Yeah, it's you want to be comfortable. And so in a situation like this, I mean, again, I feel bad when my friends who are vegan come over and I'm, you know, I'm like, we only have one kind of hummus. I'm so sorry. I'm and a you're terrible like, person. Kielbasa! Yeah, like, could I could I interest you in a in a in a jerky slice? Anyways, so David will talk about this as kind of a period of head deteriorating. And he's, you know, he's not getting better. They were hoping he would get better with time. But his isolation in the cabin, his time spent away from people is just making him worse and worse. Yeah. And so it it gets to the point where the parents just cannot even talk to him anymore. You know, the, he basically tells them, you ruined my life. You turned me into this. You've turned me into this hermit, basically. And I blame you for this. And so I do not want to talk to you. So fine. Mm-hmm. They don't talk. And so. Ted will end up having a relationship with them where if they have to write him and they want him to respond or even read the letter, they need to put a red line underneath the return address. And he will eventually institute that with David as well, but for a, an even more ridiculous reason. And I mean, again, mm-hmm. you know, your relationship with your parents is always complicated. Mm-hmm. And like we said in those first episodes, you know, you can kind of see his point of view in some cases with the parents of, you know, you guys turned me into this little genius and I hated it and I wanted to play tuba and you made mm-hmm. me go to Harvard instead of Oberlin. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can see it. You can see his point in some cases. But again, if there's if there is ever a place that you can go and change that trajectory for yourself, it's college. Yeah, and also when you get to be 37, you don't get to blame other people for who you are. No, it st- it stops being your parents' fault. You know, the minute you leave yeah. high school, I mean again, he was 16 when we went to Harvard. Like you're a little slack yeah. in Harvard, right? But still I'm not oh, yeah, and I'm not saying that you aren't a product of nurture with your family and that that that's 
that's good and bad and can skew one way or the other for a lot of people. But I am saying like at a certain point, you are an adult and you you don't get to like, you have a responsibility to yourself yes. that you don't have when you're a child because you don't have that awareness. But as an adult, you have an awareness that you have a responsibility to heal yourself if you are wounded. Yeah. And I don't think that that kicked in. No, him, it never, right? no, it never, it never did. So he then sends another bomb. So uh, October 8th, 1981, he sends a bomb to the University of Utah. This one is diffused mm-hmm. beforehand, thank God, so it doesn't injure anybody. He then sends in May 5th of 1982 a bomb to Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, which um, ends up getting found by a secretary, or rather it's delivered, and the secretary opens it and it uh, injures her, again causing uh, burns and then cuts and stuff from shrapnel. Then he will begin a uh, series of bombings to, in fact, at, uh, well, it's not really, a, it's not much of a series. Let's put it this way. He begins kind of a, a a primer and then the sequel, right? The first bomb and then a second bombing will come later to the California system, University of California um, at Berkeley campus of specifically the engineering school. Mm. This bomb uh, gets sent in July 2nd, 1982, and it goes to um, Diogenes Angelakos, who is an engineering professor who in particular was the head of the electrical engineering department at the time. This bomb, it again causes severe burns. The shrapnel causes, you know, lacerations to his hands and his hands and his face. But within this bomb, he leaves a clue, which again will be part of that series of kind of red herrings that he leaves in particular on purpose. The bomb has a note inside of it that says, woo, it works. I told you it would RV with woo being spelled W-U. And this, as well as all the other kind of red herrings, would lead investigators down, you know, months-long chases of this info. And they're, you know, I mean, they're 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 running searches on everyone named everyone with the last name Wu that they can find, essentially, with any links to Chicago or mm-hmm. California or Tennessee and, and Utah, right? They're just trying to find yeah. someone, any lead for this. And you have to eliminate that. Yeah, right? You can't say you ignored that, and even it, though it's far-fetched. Absolutely. And so at this point now, the investigators are thinking, we don't know what we're, we really don't know what we're doing just yet. However, they will get a good lead, but they will not necessarily be able to do anything with it when a janitor says that he saw someone with a mustache leaving the building that he had never seen before, a white guy that matched Ted Kaczynski's description. Hmm. So interesting. It could have been Jake. Sorry. Could have been Jake with that. That's why he shaved the mustache. Jake, I'm so sorry. It wasn't you. <laughs> and then the bomber. You, were, you weren't even a glimmer in your in your dad's eye. No, not yet. Never even mind. Okay. The bomber then goes silent, and they don't hear anything for the next three years. And again, this is really weird because it's a long time. Again, he. I mean, he's well, he's he's basically been bombing every year, at least once a year for the past. You know, past five, six years. Yeah. So he has really been very active at this point and he goes silent. And so the FBI thinks, well, maybe we got lucky. Maybe this guy got locked up. Maybe he got institutionalized. Maybe he got killed. Maybe a bomb went off when he was experimenting. Mm -hmm. Or they thought maybe he got the result he wanted. Maybe enough people, you know, who knows, right? What kind of crazy things might be in someone's head. But that is not what's going on. 
Ted spends the time making, perfecting a better explosive concoction. So up to this point, he was using smokeless powder, mm-hmm. essentially a mixture of gunpowder and some other chemicals that's easily ignited and then causes an explosion. He's now using a different type of explosive that burns longer, creates a much bigger explosion, and has the ability in a smaller area to send more shrapnel flying faster. Mm. And so this is the point now where the bombs go from, again, I mean, they're lethal. The first period, they're essentially, I mean, they're, they're dangerous, but they're, they're like fireworks, yeah. right? They're like homemade fireworks. They're going to pop. You're going to burn your hand. Maybe it'll get in your eye. You'll, you'll get scratches and cuts and things, but it's not going to, it's not going to hurt anybody. The next round become very, you know, quite dangerous. You're going to get burns, whatever. This is the first round where they could really kill. Right. And it's, I think, worthy of note of two things. Like, he's always had the intent to get to this place. Absolutely. You, so, like, like, like in the quotes we've been, like yeah. in the quotes you've been reading from, from um, yeah. Harvard and the Unabomber. Yeah. Every time he fails, he writes in his diary, you know, oh, another he's failure. He's mad. Like that, you can tell that that's motivating him. But then also, like, think about, like, the discipline it took for three years not to act out. Right? Because it's like, he's not... He's he's formulating his next, you know, his next big and better. And it's like he clearly craves that reaction to have that to to have that revenge that he is going to make these people pay. And to go three years is a pretty long period of time to not have that. Yeah. Satisfaction. That release, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So. The first of the new series of bombs that he will send Again, like we said, is kind of a continuation of his of the first sent over to the California um, campus of the University of, or, excuse me, the Berkeley campus of the University of California. This mm-hmm. next bomb gets sent May fifteenth, nineteen eighty five. It uh, goes again to Berkeley, and it will uh, explode uh, with a graduate student. It will lead to the loss of four of his fingers, a severed artery in his right arm, and then the loss of vision in one of his eyes. Uh, partially, and so thankfully this guy will actually survive his injuries, but it could have definitely killed somebody. The next bomb goes to uh, the Boeing company, and this was, so the first one was May 15th. This next one is June 13th in 1985. This one goes to the Boeing company in Washington State. Again, this one is diffused, so no deaths there. Then in very quick succession, so again, we have May, then June, then November 15th, 1985, he sends a bomb to the University of Michigan, which will lead to, again, burns and shrapnel loss on a professor and his research assistant. And then in December of 1985, a bomb will go off outside of a computer store in Sacramento, California, where Hugh Scrutton, the owner, will be killed by the bomb. This series of bombings leads to a bunch of other leads for the for the FBI but again they're all they're all red herrings. So first off that bomb that got sent to Boeing it is in it is sent in a kind of interlocking case that is very similar to the kind of cases or the kind of locks and sort of interesting um mechanical locking devices that don't use screws and things that are found in prosthetics at the time. Mhm. 
And so they think, well, this is very similar to a way that a prosthetic is packaged and sent out. So maybe he works in a prosthetic company. Maybe he's got a prosthetic. Maybe he's got whatever, right? The next one is they think maybe that this bomb that is sent over to um, Hugh Scrutton, Mm -hmm. the one that actually kills, right? Mm -hmm. They think... After this one, they're they're looking at the list of things, and they're trying to find these clues. But now they have a death on their hands, and this is when the real the search goes into overdrive, right? Like this guy's killed somebody now. He's he's proven he can do it, and he's going to do it again for sure. He's definitely going to try again. So they now start looking at. I, I mean, originally their list of suspects. I mean, they don't have a list of suspects per per se. They have a a file drawer of suspects. You know, they have they have yes. cla- categories of people they think could be the suspect. Their categories, though, explode. They balloon, right? They go from looking for, you know, technical specialists in the very beginning with that original good profile to mm-hmm. looking at mechanics, anybody with any kind of connection to the airlines, whatever, right? That doesn't yeah. really work all that well. But again, that's where they're looking to now. And, th- and that's in those specific states. Now they're looking for anybody across the country because he is no longer focusing just on Chicago, but instead focusing on a bunch of different places. And the way that the bombs are making their way through the post office is suggest a, someone with a, with some kind of knowledge of how that would work. So one thing that they point out is that it it had specific postage or it had exact postage every single time on the bombs Mm -hmm. or near exact postage. Mm -hmm. Another one is that these were being sent from different post offices and they're not coming from the same post office. Right. They were, the FBI believed that the Unabomber had definite knowledge of, of not just sort of postage, but the actual idea of like how postage got to where it was supposed to be in postal streams. So it enters, it enters a carrier route and then it goes into a huge postal hub and then it is sent or trucked to where it's supposed to go, goes into another postal hub and then it's put into another carrier route. So it goes from very, you know, again, from from your from being delivered or being a post, you know, your your individual into a much bigger um, sorting area. And that is where they were able to go in and try and identify and try and pull some of these some of these packages that they were able to preemptively find. However, um, and that was where it was coming out of Chicago, but he was also able to realize that that was going to happen and that you see he either hand delivered them or, or, or switched it up and went into different postal streams. Right. Well, a lot of the the time is pretty amazing to think about. Well, a lot of the times he's putting postage on these things, Mm -hmm. but then he's just hand delivering them, you know? So it's, it's not even, it's, it's not going through a post office. He's not even getting that. No, he's just, he just bought postage someplace and he's traveling around. And he does lament. Yeah. And he does lament the fact that he doesn't get any sort of, um, he doesn't get any kind of injury or fatality. And he's, he's having to go out of pocket a lot. You know, he's living on a very shoestring budget to begin with. And he's having to spend a lot of money to travel and deliver these, you know, these, these deadly devices. He would have loved Amazon Prime. Oh my God! Can you imagine what uh, what Kaczynski thinks of Amazon? That's amazing. Can't be happy. Oh about my it. God! Anyways, so <gasps> after that bombing at the computer store, the other thing mm-hmm. that the FBI finally decides to do is it 
it has to go public with this story. It has to tell people there is, in fact, a serial bomber on the loose. We mm-hmm. need help. Please give us your tips, anything. Mm-hmm. And they, I mean, they get a lot of different hints and things. Like, people will call and say, you know, well, I think a lot of people evidently call the FBI when things like this happen and say that they think it's their ex-husband or ex-wife or their, you know, ex-boyfriend you know boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever for different reasons. And the FBI, I mean, evidently that is such a common thing that all of the articles on this that I read mention it, that people say, you know, well, my ex-husband hated planes. <laughs> and they're like, okay. And so then they got, you know, they look into uh, it and nothing comes of it. But it's a huge, it's a tremendous waste of time. Or rather, yes. it's, here's the thing. The public saying, I don't, I don't think generally that the public will report it and just say it, you know, I just want to get back at my ex. You know what I'm saying? It's probably a, the outlier, right? Right. That's I mean, probably the outlier. That type of thing is very much, yeah. But still, suddenly they've opened the floodgates to everyone in America being able to call up and say, I think it's, you know, Jerry down the road because I've heard some pops coming from his house. Right. Or, you know, right. bi- you know, uh, I don't know, Mary, Mary's ex-husband was a, uh, right. you know, an airline mechanic and then he Seemed died. Seemed like a hot in a, head in a that worked or, for United. Yeah. yeah. Right. So it, it just, yeah. it opens it up. It opens the floodgates. Yeah. And any kind of conspiracy, conspiratorial thinking that goes on with that as well. Like if you have a mindset that you have somebody in mind that would do something like this and all of a sudden it comes to fruition, you probably are going to, you know, call that in. So then David visits Ted in Montana for two weeks and they spend mm-hmm. a lot of time with each other. They, you know, I mean, obviously they're in a cabin alone. Right. But right. David will live, will sleep in a tent outside because he doesn't like it inside the cabin. Actually, he says it feels cramped to him, which is kind of funny. Can't imagine. And then uh, what's it's kind of a funny anecdote in there. Ted is kind of embarrassed that he, he has a, uh, a crank operated radio. And David is like, what are you? What is this? Are you listening to rock and roll? You know, it's kind of funny that Ted is like, I only use this for the news and weather. <laughs> you know, like, will you explain this to you, man? You look oh ridiculous. Anyways. Well, and it's like the sibling, sort of the sibling thing. Like, why make fun of your brother has a, you know, like a crank radio. Come on. Yeah. It's so funny. So good. They leave, you know, David will say, I didn't notice anything weird about the time period. There are no chemicals. There's right. no bomb making stuff, whatever. But the Unabomber strikes then again in February of 1987. And so I want to read this quote from prisoner of rage here. Cause I think it's really great. So quote, the Unabomber was always careful. He never left fingerprints. The stamps on his packages were never licked. lest saliva become evidence for DNA experts. He was always well away with when his explosions occurred. But on February 20th, 1987, when one of his bombs went off outside a salt Lake city computer store and injured an employee, something extraordinary happened. A woman nearby spotted the man who had left the bomb package. He looked right at her, and she remembered him clearly. A hooded sweatshirt, a mustache, reddish-brown hair, a square jaw, and menace lurking behind the aviator sunglasses. He panicked. The bomber, who had meticulously covered his tracks for nearly a decade, had made a mistake. He fled. And as the woman's description became a sketch that found its way into newspapers and magazines across the country... He retreated into the shadows and halted his bombing campaign for six years. Wow. And that is really the end of kind of the middle period of bombings. Yes. 
but gives us one of the most recognizable images, yeah. I think, like, you know, in the 20th century. Absolutely. Is the, is, the, is the the drawing of that, right? And how many times that's been utilized in other stuff. It's, you know, because the, the thing is, is it's, she saw him, she identified him, but that that's anybody. Right. That's no one. You know, that's like what they already knew, which was he was a white guy. <laughs> right. Well, who could grow facial hair. Right. And that's it. Yeah. That's it. They didn't, they didn't, that was the, the one thing that the profiles, you know, was consistent. It's a white man. It's, it's pretty interesting. Not that right? every white man is going to bump, but just saying that that was, that was consistently throughout. That was definitely consistent throughout. So it is now the six years too. Yeah, six, a six oh year period without bombing. But now in this period, he, he starts a weird friendship with some random guy in Mexico. So he starts, he starts sending letters back and forth with a friend of his brother, uh, a farmhand named Juan Sanchez Ariola, who lived in Ojinaga, Mexico. So originally, um, originally uh, Juan Sanchez sent the letter. He just kind of had David forward a letter over to anyone he knew because this guy was asking for money to help with medical bills. And mm-hmm. instead, the Unabomber was like, oh, a friend. And so they started sending letters back and forth. And really, this guy probably becomes Ted's only real, only real friend, you know? And he, he gets letters from him talking about his frustration and how lonely he gets and how much he wishes he had a wife. And, you know, it's a really... It's sort of an oddly human side for this guy that has never really had a close relationship. Well, yeah, and he can't he can't act out, right? He has no other means of expression. Right. That's, you know, that's productive or otherwise. So 1989 David brings Ted uh pretty devastating news for Ted. Mhm. You know, David says, "Well, listen, I have I've been seeing a woman. Her name is Linda Patrick. I've known her since high school. And I've always kind of liked her. And I wrote her a love letter. Juan told me to write her a love letter because we all have this weird relationship with Juan. And um, it worked. And so now we're going to get married. You know? Mm. And. Mm, mm, mm. That does not bode well. No. And so Ted, Ted basically says, well, we're, we can't talk anymore. I, I no longer want to talk with you. This woman is manipulating you. This woman who is, you know, going to use you and take you away from nature. And you're going to start living in New York. And he wants to move to Schenectady, New York, you know, and Ted is really mm-hmm. angry about that. And it's just said it's, it's ridiculous. Right. And so he's Again, a really healthy outlook on women too. Right. right? And so, like, well, so he yeah. says, he says that, you know, he says that, he says, he literally says, David, you're throwing your life away by getting married. Even though it's, he's writing these letters to Juan saying, I wish I hadn't thrown my wife, my life away by going into the woods. You know, he's almost, he's attacking David for not living the kind of pure life that he thinks he wants or the kind of pure life that he is living, but he knows how lonely that life is. He knows how terrible it is. Yeah. Well, it's not like any of his stuff is really, truly logical, right? I mean, 
he is jealous. He's he's angry. He's like the one member of the family who he hasn't completely ostracized from his life is now normalizing with everyone else that he's something he's just not able to do, but he probably on some level recognizes that that's not just what's, what's expected of him, but what he wants, but he just, there's nothing that's going to get him to that point. It's, it's just crazy, right? This kind of this anger here at this. Yeah. And so yes, a few weeks later, Ted sends him another letter basically saying, you know, I'm sorry for the way I acted with that. I, I, I'm just really worried about dying because I am, I have a heart arrhythmia, which I've recently become aware of. And David is like, I don't think that's true. That's kind of weird. <laughs> right. And so, um, right. Did he ever, I couldn't, I didn't find anything on that. Did he actually have I that? I don't think so. I think it's just, that just hyper, sort of a, I think it's a hypochondriac, pity, or like, hypochondriac kind of thing. You know what I mean? I don't know. I have no idea. They just wanted attention. I think he just gets so angry that his body goes into like panic spirals. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you've ever had that kind of like really deep mm-hmm, panic attack, mm-hmm. but like he just gets so, he gets so emotional that. What do you think wakes <laughs> me up in the morning, <laughs> man? Saying, like his, his, if it's not the existential angst, it's the deep panic. Yeah. I think he just gets so worked up that he, he can't <laughs> handle it. You know what I mean? Anyways. Yeah. So yeah. Or he's just telling him that because he, wa- he, he wants him to feel bad. To yeah. He wants me to connect. Feel bad. Right. I, I have to have this person feel bad. I just isolated myself from them and said all these terrible things. And I can't say I'm sorry. Cause the one thing that the Unabomber has never in his personal, uh, in his personal life was to have that. No, he's never of, really sorry. felt sorry. So it's, this is yeah. the closest yeah, so this is the closest you can get is I, I if I can get you to pity me or to feel bad for me, that will circumvent me having to take any kind of responsibility for my actions as well. So he then sends – he basically starts to tell Sanchez, you know, well, I'm officially out of the family. You know, it's kind of all over for me. David will move to Schenectady. Um, their father will commit suicide in October of 1990. And Ted actually – Ted doesn't even attend the funeral, which is, yeah, even though his father, you know, gave him the love of nature, you know, so mm-hmm. he does will he though does send his condolences to his mother. He calls her and offers his condolences and talks to the family and things, which is not a normal occurrence at this point. And the mother then will write him and, and ask him to talk about how painful he thought the ch- the Chinese childhood was, you know? Why does he hate her? Why does he have this painful relationship with her? Mm. And he sends back a letter. Mm-hmm. He sends back a letter essentially at the beginning is kind of kind of toned and normal, but just crescendos quick. You know, and it goes on and it just it becomes basically like a, a laundry list of you're a terrible mother, you did all these terrible things to me, whatever. So he he writes in particular quote, mm-hmm. "You're more interested in having a brilliant son than seeing that son happy and fulfilled." End quote. Which again, mm-hmm. you can kind of mm-hmm. see the point. And then the mother writes back, you know, kind of that way that I don't know. It's it's a very like teenaged well, that mothers do. It's, 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 it's a very say, teenaged right? argument almost, yeah. right? Where yes, you're complaining yes. about something well, again, happening yeah. to you or that you don't feel like life is is fair to you at the moment or whatever. 
And then she writes back and says, well, you know, you're such a handsome, smart boy. Why don't you just go out there on the dating scene? And he's like, that's not what I want to hear right now, mother. You know? Um, <laughs> but but it's also like, again, how old is he? Like, he's he has... He can no longer put this back on anyone or anything else. There is nothing else that he... He has full agency over his life to be able to 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 do something with it. What he's chosen to do with it is is evil. But instead of like recognizing, you know, but his mom's not the problem, you know, the litany of it, you know, the litany of like, you know, you just wanted a child genius. Again, like you said, that that's cool up until you're like twenty, I'm gonna say maybe twenty four, twenty five, and then yeah. and then no, man. That just that, that doesn't no. hold water anymore. No. So David then, I know, well, the mom, too, you know, like, we said that the first quote in the beginning, we, we said on. that first, I don't even know if we mentioned this quote in the beginning, mm-hmm. but it was from Prisoner of Rage, or maybe it's from, maybe it's from my brother, the Unabomber. I, I can't remember where I, where this is from, but it's in some of the literature here for this, where they talk about after the sentencing, they met with one of the victims. Mm-hmm. Of of one of the people that he killed. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was Moser's. Yeah, I can't remember the exact person yeah. that they met with, but they met with someone, the, the family of someone who was killed by the Unabomber, and you know the mother starts to say, you know, well, we didn't raise him to be like this. I can't believe this happened, and I'm so sorry, and and whatever. And the per and the one of the daughters or something says, you know, you. you you can never know what you took from us. Right. Or, you know, he's a monster. He doesn't right. deserve our pity. We don't, or she, that's what it is. She starts talking about the hospital event when he was a kid with the, with the hives. And they say, right. you know, we don't right. pity him. Like right. he killed someone. He took someone from us. He's right. a monster. He deserves whatever bad things happen to him. Right. And the mom kind of looks at the floor and says, you know, well, I, I wish he had killed me instead. Coming up on five minute news. I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. And uh, it's a very touching, you know, they, they all start crying and, you know, it's a very touching kind of moment. Right. And you think, you know, you, she, there's the guilt this woman must have felt is is just tragic, right? Well, yeah. And the husband has committed suicide yeah. because of illness, right? He had a He had a fatal illness and he decides to do that, which again, you know, you could argue good, bad and different about if they have the right to do that. But that's like a very traumatic thing to have happen in a family and she's, you know, it's, I, I think that that's, that's yeah, a lot to bear, I think on top of everything else. And then you have a, a, a son that just, you know, that is that you can't reconnect to no matter how badly you want to, who had all this promise. And again, she's, she's somewhat delusional because she can clearly see this person is on some, someplace in her nose, this person is broken. And is and is could be harming others. I think on some level that must have registered someplace. But the denial of that is so strong 
to, you know, to, again, to sublimate it. Like, I wish that, I just wish he would have killed me. Like, that's just like, yeah. holy smokes, man. That's, that's heavy. Not good, not good dinner conversation. Not, no, not kinda, yeah, okay. Not cool. Just not, not okay. okay. So, not okay. Uh, David will then get, so David gets married in 1991. Mm-hmm. And this is really like, that's mm-hmm. the end of their relationship. Oh, I was going to say, and he's the best man. No, no, he's, no that's the end no. of this relationship. He leads the toes. Hey, David, this, do you remember that time? Nope. This is really too. This is the first time that, that Ted is really, he's finally succeeded in cutting everyone out of his life. You know, as much as he's tried, this yes. is really the first time it's worked in some way. So the bombings then really heat up again. So the, the Unabomber comes back June 22nd, 1993. Mm-hmm. A bomb is sent. Um, so there's actually two bombs that go off in quick succession. There's the June 22nd bomb in uh, Tiburon, California, which goes to Charles Epstein, who is a geneticist mm-hmm. um, that causes uh, partial hearing loss, loss of three fingers, you know, uh, severe damage to his eardrums. And then in June 24th, a bomb will be sent and go off at Yale University in Connecticut. This one uh, going to David Galemter, who is a computer science professor. Mm. Um, this one leads to the loss of his right hand, um, shrapnel wounds and, uh, severe burns with this bomb comes a letter to the New York times. And this is really the first time that the bomber has decided to speak Mm. and it will prove to be his biggest mistake. Yes. So yes, the bomb says that the FCs founded all those bombs stood for freedom club the group that is taking responsibility for these bombings and that we are going to send further correspondence with an identifying number that will ensure that no copycats are given any kind of credence. And so the number he sends is, is in the form of his uh, social security number five, five, three, two, five, four, three, nine, three. Turns out it is some guy's social security number. Um, I think the guy is dead now, or I'm sure he's gotten to change since then because it's all over the internet. But anyways, and too clever by half, right? I mean, you're just recomplicating something that is you're you're showing that I want to make sure that you know that this is me, and I have created this whole elaborate thing to make sure that that is the case. Which is sort of like I don't know, dude. You you kind of got a captive audience. We're gonna believe it's you. Well. You don't need a unique identifying no, right? pin no. that you enter and have it read back to you backwards in Esperanto to have it be <laughs> legit. You are, you you got us. You got you us. Got it. Here we are, New York Times. We're there. At this point, too, what's kind of interesting, because, again, the FBI does not know anything about these bombings, really. They have no leads at all that are any good. Mm-hmm. They actually think because of the, the because of the time that this bombs, these bombs are sent and also their their targeted a geneticist and then a computer scientist. They think it might have something to do with Jurassic Park being released that week. What? Yeah. Which is, or like being released recently around that time period, which is kind of, kind of interesting. But again, they have no, they have nothing to go on. Right. And the message of Jurassic Park is definitely, you know, we shouldn't be toying with nature with technology because it'll come back to hurt us. Right. Well, at a certain point, like within 1990, uh, 1983, they also were very interested in Dungeons yes, and yes, Dragons. Yes, they were, of course. Well, Satanic Panic, right? Did We did that. 
satanic panic. But yeah, maybe, you know, maybe it was somebody coming out of that that whole sect, you know, the the co-creator, you know, that that could have had it, could have something, could have some involvement in this. So another it's a little bit. A little bit, a little bit. Maybe it's a goblin. So another another thing that's on this letter is actually an impression on the letter that is just discernible with kind of the correct tools and things. And it says on it, call Nathan R Wednesday, 7 p.m. But again, the FBI doesn't really still think that there's a big link between the victims. You know, I mean, yeah, they're all professors they're all whatever, Mm -hmm. but there's no it's not like he's only targeting electrical engineers, you know, or he's only targeting. He just seems to be going after technology generally, which is what he's doing. Right. But there's no way to really link. None of these people have any relations with each other outside of their general relationship as professors or technologists. Yes. But the, and they don't know if it's just one person. Either. Right, right. And so, okay, that's the other thing this letter tells them, or at least suggests to them, is mm-hmm. maybe some of those other clues that we've been sent are red herrings. Because they think that this has to be a single person. Mm-hmm. Because given all of the money that they have that they have put out as reward for any information, and given the fact that there's such a time disparity between the bombings, mm-hmm. they're thinking if it's more than one person there are going to be other bombings going on or someone's going to crack, right? It's too long for this to have been a known secret to a group of people. So now they're thinking this guy is, this guy is lying to us. Mm -hmm. He's, He's gotta be lying to us too. The letters though, will the letters in the correspondence of the Unabomber and the way that this case is now progressing over time lead David's wife to say to him, maybe your brother is the Unabomber. Maybe it's Ted. Because they're publishing them. They're which publishing. Was a big deal. Yeah. So, and, you know, even when the FBI first came out and said, we're looking for anyone who's anti technology, who maybe is violent, who maybe is, mm-hmm. you know, has something against these things. Even at that point, when he was telling her about Ted, she was saying to him, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's your brother. Hmm. Like, maybe it's worth at least having a conversation with him about it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. David, of course, is hesitant. He he doesn't he doesn't think his brother has an in him. And at this point, too, the only correspondence they have is Ted occasionally writing, asking for money. You know, to help yeah. him. Yeah. I mean, David doesn't know this, but to help him make more bombs. Well, and it is. I mean, again, it would be a stretch to think that it's your brother, it's your family member who's doing this. Like, yes, he has problems, but. Again, like the denial of it would go into that would be pretty big. Well, pretty as, as far as you know, your brother has never yeah. hurt somebody on purpose. No, no. You know? And he's almost like never violent, medial and childlike and, and um, juvenile in his approach to things. Like how would he, how would it go from the limericks and, you know, and being mad to, to this? Oh yeah. Cause it's not like he sees him on an everyday basis or is, he's, you know, really connecting to that. Yeah, Leonard on Big Bang Theory yes. is going to be really surprised when he finds the severed heads in the in the garage. He's going to be really surprised. You know, I hate that show. God, I hate Dude, that show. I know you do. We've discussed. Okay, quick side note, listeners. We have discussed in past episodes Chris's loathing of the Big Bang Theory and the the treatise behind it. 
And um, I would agree. I haven't listened or watched it in, God, a number of years. I'm surprised it's still on. It's wrapping up, right? I, I don't this know. This year it's supposed to I be wrapping up? I hope up? so. <sighs> I haven't had a set of bomb yet. That's all I'll say. Okay, anyways. <laughs> I won't. That's a Dude, joke. Plausible. That's a joke. Plausible it's deniability joke. has just gotten. There it is. Okay. Yes, the first thing is they communicate outwards with it's, their rage so, to people other than family oh, members. Oh, it's a joke, folks. Please, no letters. Okay. The bomber then sends. He then another. That's at Chris F. <laughs> so another. At Med Scientist Family. Another yes, bomb ahead. then gets sent out. So December 94, a bomb goes to Thomas J. Mosser, who or, or Moser, mm-hmm. I guess. He's an advertising executive. Moser, yeah. And that will, uh, it'll it'll kill him, right? And that's, this one gets sent in, uh, he's in North Caldwell, New Jersey. Another bomb is then sent April 24th, um, 1995. And this one is just a couple days after Oklahoma City. So mm-hmm. Janet Reno is already in a world of hurt. You know, she's messed up some other things mm-hmm. already. Oklahoma mm-hmm. City happens. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, things aren't looking great. And now another bomb yeah. from this Unabomber guy. And this one goes to a timber industry lobbyist named Gilbert Brent Murray, and he will also die. And this is in Sacramento, California. Um, at this point, and so in, in Sacramento, uh, so both of those bombs, because there's one in 94 and then one in 95, both of those bombs are actually sent from Sacramento. And the last bomb Actually, a desk clerk at a local hotel, the Royal Hotel, Frank Hensley, says that he remembers, he, afterwards he says, I remember Mr. Kaczynski checking in, and he used the last name mm. Conrad, which if you remember, mm. is the last name, mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the author that he loves. Joseph Conrad, yep. And so at this point, he sends his magnum opus, Industrial Society and Its Future, to every major newspaper, and says that if it's published, he will hold off on the bombings um, for a period of time. And yeah. it is published in September of 1995. And right. this is the point now where the FBI really gets in a high gear. Right. Well, the FBI is behind and advocating for it to actually go out, to be, for it to be published. Yes. Because they're feeling like there's enough indicators within this, because they've given them a big enough sample set, right? He, he sent in these smaller letters that they read, they disseminated, they started to get some, you know, some linguistic information from, but then he sends like, how many pages was it? It was like, it's like 70 something pages. Yeah. 70 pages. Right. That is basically almost like a fingerprint to tell people how, who you are and how you think. And that's, that is, that's what does it. Well, so I think, that kind of like that public, that seeking public, which to me, this is the most interesting point, isn't so much that they were able to dis- disseminate who he was at this point, but what made him decide, I want to start talking to people about this. Right. And like there's a, there's this huge change. Like, was it because he lost his the communication with his brother? Because it's not like he was talking to his brother about this stuff anyway. No, I think... I- but. That outlet is gone, and he's like, "I'm start. I'm getting a hold of the New York Times, which you're quiet for six years. Like you can keep things for this huge amount of time, and then you decide that this is a good idea. Honestly, and this is almost to me like 
he wants to get caught. Honestly, I think it has a little bit to do with Oklahoma City. I think he was jealous. Really? I, I think this guy is getting so much. He has been trying to send a bomb that'll hurt somebody for like 20 years at this point. And some right. some rank amateur, some dummy does it. Someone not as smart as Ted does it and manages to kill. I mean, it's horrible. But from Ted's, oh, yeah. from, from Ted's no, Oklahoma pers- City was but from Ted's was pers- singularly from Ted's yeah. perspective, right? He's thinking, yeah. He, I I think really? I think he's I think he is looking at. He's like Monet, looking at you know mm-hmm. a painting from Sears, and he's like, I cannot believe that th- that those are the things that are being sold. I'm the artist. I'm the person that should be making the money from this. Do you know what I mean? I, Interesting. I think he so it is, was Mozart and Salieri. I think so. I kind of think so. Yeah, I That's think that he thinks. I think that he thinks, who the hell is this guy? I am. Do, I've been doing this for the right reasons for so long, and I also think too he thinks he can ride a little bit of the wave of the Oklahoma City bombing, and and also say and maybe this is you know I don't I can't say this exactly right, but also say a little bit you know, well now bombing is in the public attention again. And mine are getting right. better too, and I'm finally getting the responses I want from this. Yeah, and this is now the real time for me really to do this. I hadn't really considered that. I hadn't considered that. I just figured, like, because the other thing is, it's not just like during this time, anti-government, anti-technology sentiment is is moving more mainstream. So, I mean, granted, it was never something as big as a bombing, but it, it seems like. I hadn't considered that. I always cons- thought, you know, I, to me, it's like, it's, it is a question like what, what was the factor that he had that moved from almost like, again, like a trial, like he was doing with the early bombs, like starting really small and just testing the water with stuff to no. this 70 page, you know, full disclosure about who he is. I think like a lot of sent to three newspapers. I think like a lot of revolutionaries or people that consider themselves to be revolutionaries, Mm-hmm. They always, you know, the literature, mm-hmm. well, the the yeah. literature and the stuff that they're working with, the philosophy they're working from always says, you know, and he even says it inside of the manifesto. He talks about how, you know, society has to be at the right time for these things to take hold. And in his mind, mm-hmm. the only way to do that is with massive violence. And so mm-hmm. I think, again, this is a little bit like, you know, I think this is a little bit like the Marxist's revolutions in countries like say China or the USSR using mm-hmm. the craziness of world war two, you know, or the, the pre, you know, after world war one using that kind of, that kind of called arms. Well, not even called, not even called arms using that kind of social trauma uh, as cause they, uh, uh, cause they think propaganda. Cause he's, almost. he's been talking about since the beginning, he's been talking about how, and he's again, he talks about it expressly in the manifesto that, this is only going to be able to happen when society gets almost shocked awake by violence. Hmm. It's only going to be possible when violence, you know, that's why he's doing the bombings because society has to be shown that these things right. are terrible. And now right. he's, and he hates planes. Well, and he hates planes. And so he's never gone. He's never gone the step beyond of mm-hmm. large scale terrorism, but he clearly played right. with the idea with the bombings on the airplanes. So right. yeah, I think I honestly think likely he would have progressed to another airline bombing shortly after this because now his bombs have killed. He's now killed two people in a row. 
You know, his, he's getting good at this now. So right. I think he, I think he right. would have, I think he publishes industrial society in its future or it's a con- whatever, you know, he publishes the mm-hmm. manifesto. And then I think he, I think then he would have done a large scale bombing somewhere. That's honestly what I think. What do you think would have happened had he not published it? Had there had Oklahoma City not because Oklahoma City too wasn't just one person. McVeigh was he was yeah Terry he yeah. was part of it yeah but like he there was it was well, a larger networked organization sort of kind yeah I mean so I, I think but, I, he I wasn't think, he doesn't have the same profile as, I no he doesn't I think if right? I think if they weren't if it wasn't published. Mm-hmm. I think he would have, I think he probably would have sent bombs to the newspapers. Really? Yeah. Or I mean, to other places. Like I, I, I think he would have kept bombing then, but I, it, there's no way, yes. there's no way once he sends it that he could not have then sent it to someplace else. Do you know what I'm saying? He even talks about how he didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't want hustler to publish it. Right. He wanted it to go into good places, you know? So right, I think right, it would have been right. published regardless. I don't think, which is amazing. To me too, it's like he doesn't want Hustler publishing the the manifesto because of yeah, yeah. It's not peer reviewed. It's right? ridiculous. So, at this point now, and as as Maria's kind of point suggested, right? The thing that ends up catching the Unabomber is a field. It's okay. The FBI has put out the thing saying we got to catch this guy. If you know anybody, mm-hmm. let us know. That happened in like I said, like eighty six around there. Yes. Does this sound like a friend or family member? Right. <laughs> It sounds like your weird neighbor. Hmm. Mm -hmm. They're getting a thousand tips a day. But Mm -hmm. one tip they get in stands Mm -hmm. out in particular. Mm -hmm. Some guy in New York forwarded over letters that his brother has been sending him for years Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. over to him and two other newspapers. They come from an attorney, uh, Tony Baselli, who Mm -hmm. who has sent the information to the FBI by way of a contact who is a retired FBI profiler. This guy's name is, uh, this guy sends those things over to Clinton R. Van Zant, and they get sent over to him mm-hmm. in early 96. This guy runs a forensic analysis on the, uh, on the manifesto and says, it's like a 60% chance that this is the guy. This is the guy. He then runs it a second time and it gets even higher. Hmm. So he suggests to, uh, the attorney that their contact, they, they contact the FBI because he thinks that he thinks it's gotta be the same guy. Hmm. So the letter gets sent over to um, the letter gets sent over to Molly Flynn, who's mm-hmm. an FBI agent who then sends it over to profiler James Fitzgerald, who has been working on the linguistic profile angle um, essentially since the manifesto first came in. Yes. So this field of, of linguistic forensics forensics is mm-hmm. actually pretty, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's primarily used actually in, so I actually found a couple of, I, I was reading a lot of papers on this cause I was trying to find first off. Okay. What does the science say? The science mm-hmm. seems to be pretty, pretty good, right? There's some, there's some controversy there with, some of the ways it gets applied in things, but generally it's very sound theory and everything else. It, it seems to make sense and it's borne out by the data. Mm-hmm. Legally, it's a little bit more iffy in the way that it gets applied sometimes. 
So it gets used a lot in trademark, actually, in like trademark cases. Yes, which I could, they will, I could understand that. Yeah. yeah, so they they will look at like the linguistic profile, the nuance, the tenor, and kind of the the timing and the things variance. of a of say like yeah, a piece what's of the variance a piece between of, the two, right. right? A piece of literature or a song or something else, spoken word, and that way they'll be able to tell. You know, there's a famous case where it's an author. This this famous author published a fairy tale essentially, and then she changed around. She like picked words or phrases to change mm-hmm. but the way that she changed them she picked less likely combinations of things right right and so they were like well there's no right. way you wouldn't do this intentionally so right. it is it's very clear that you uh you you stole this right it was fighting upstream it wasn't yes. a natural change yep yeah which is fascinating it's- like to me it's like language and how people use language and when you try to hide it's sort of like handwriting right like when you try and hide handwriting or change your handwriting it shows that it indicates that because it's almost too too prevalent or too strong to do that to it becomes its own its own indicator right right it's so yeah so here so here's actually the example that i'm thinking mm-hmm. of right so mm-hmm. it's um it's a case to detect plagiarism. So it's Helen Keller wrote a short story, the frost King. Mm -hmm. Um, And then another, um, she was accused of plagiarism in 1892. Mm -hmm. So it found that it actually had been, she she tried to plagiarize. She did. She did plagiarize. Wait, Helen Um, Keller did. Yes. Oh, so she plagiarized a book by Margaret Canby. That was called the frost fairies, Mm -hmm. which had been read to her sometime earlier. So, what she found was that she changed, they changed only certain words or phrases. So uh, Keller used vast wealth instead of treasure, which is 230 times less common in English, but thought instead of concluded, which is 450 times less common, bade them instead of told them, which is 30 times less common. And then Keller used the phrase ever since that time, while can be chose from that time, um, which again is 50 times more common than what Keller used. Right. So, it found that the they use a test House on is it. Just totally like blowing me up about Helen Keller, but okay. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, right? And so there's other cases too. But so the main the main ways that forensic linguistics get used in legal proceedings right now are author identification, right? Who wrote things? Mm-hmm. Um, using their stylistics. That's what the Keller case kind of shows us, right? Um, but also actually looking at also looking at what the language of the law itself actually means and how easy it is to understand the law. So the most, actually the most famous case of linguistics being used in a legal case is the Miranda rights, uh, Mm. the case of Miranda rights, right? How Mm -hmm. do you know that someone understands their rights under the law? Right. That's a linguistic question that we have to answer if we're going to ever treat someone in, in kind of legal cases, right? Hmm. Other ones Mm -hmm. too, which are really interesting are uh, the analysis of emergency calls ransom demands and Mm. also um, death row statements. So Uh, analyzing whether or not um, a statement at death row is, is true or not is actually a really big mm -hmm. part of the the law as well. Hmm. Okay. So fascinating. I mean, language in itself and linguistics and how people use words, especially, especially in writing, especially like in something like a manifesto, the idea of it, you would put out, you would put out writing and it would be able to lead back to who you are or to give more information about 
where to find you is it's like a fingerprint. It's fascinating to me. Well, what's funny, what's funny is we've kind of been running a, a forensic linguistics experiment here on the show without realizing it. What? Because people Shut complain the all the time door. about how uh-huh. many times I say right in an episode. And you will you do not realize how often you say a word or you say um or you go back to the you know you know is one two or all, all of that. Every time I say it, my brain is like 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 is another one, Marie. It's terrible. It's terrible, it Marie. It's terrible. I find what I do is I interrupt myself. Like if I am trying to put together a thought that I am just putting out, I will start something and then I will interrupt myself in the middle of it. And then I will interrupt myself again. So I'll be like, okay. It's like when you're going to the zoo, but you're not, well, it's the book you read when you were in seventh grade. You remember that book, but it wasn't, it was like, it was like the heat was hitting your face. Like you were in front of an oven and you're getting some place in your head, but you're not getting any place to anybody else. No. And I realize I do that quite often. And somebody actually sent me a, um, a older um, SNL skit about a guy who does that. And it was hysterical. And I was laughing. And then I was like, yeah, it's very funny. <laughs> very can, funny. I am very self-referential. Very funny. It yes, is, but I, I agree with you. And you don't say it right a lot. I do. If, if you, you do, you know what? No, it's it is super funny and I love it and I try my best not to say it, but mm-hmm. it is definitely there. Mm. So we'll just have to pay Jake more to edit it all out. <laughs> Sorry, that's a poor good. Jake. All right. So yes. first what? we have to pay Jake. Sorry. I know. Well, first, like, the show would have, first the show would have to make money. Then we, could, then we can yes. pay Jake. So the oh, the way that this cry. the way that yeah. this analysis works essentially is you are trying to find patterns in the way mm-hmm. that sentences are structured, common turns of phrases like for instance like or right or any of those other ones. Yes. And you're also trying to find similarities in the way that that sentences are structured and also the way that stories are structured or the way that the writing itself is structured. So I'll give you an example. If you read something written by a scientific person or written a scientific article, it is way different than an article written for the humanities or a book or anything else. Yes. So that immediately gives you a hint that this person is trained in the sciences and it even comes through in creative writing. So there are ways that you can pick apart those kinds of things, but there's also much easier ones. So I actually, we had, again, the same guy who typed on the Unabomber's typewriter, Justin, told us yesterday at our party that yins is a, I guess, like a, uh, what's the, not Philly, but uh, Pittsburgh. It's like a Pittsburgh thing. What is? Called, saying yins. Yins? I looked it up. It, it's it's U1s. It's supposed to be U1s, yes. uh, but turn it, like, you know, like y'all? Yeah. It's like y'all, but it's for Pittsburgh. So it's yins. Interesting. Okay. I've never heard of it. Yins yins are welcome here. would be like, you are all welcome here. Never heard of that. But again, so yins, y'all saying, saying Coke or soda or pop. That would Mm -hmm. be another example of this kind of thing. Davenport. Sofa. 
love suit. Yes, yes, yep. 100%. Those would be examples of this too. But also, with the Unabomber, there were some particular ones that stood out. And one was, have your cake and eat it too, versus eat your cake and have it too. Mm-hmm. The he first said, one is the normal. Is the normal. first one is the normal one. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that is a, it's kind of an error. And this is called, this is called idiolect. It's your individual dialect. Mm-hmm. Have your cake and eat it too is a misspoken version or a misremembered, not really misremembered, but a, over time it has been changed from the actual correct original saying, eat your cake and have it too. <sighs> so this was kind of one of those things of him showing I, you know, I am refined and smarter than everyone else because I use it correctly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Then, so it was yeah. Th- it was things like this that really led them to find this. But here's the thing, though, that hmm. it doesn't really work without a piece of without something to compare against. Right. You have Those to have e- evidence to back that up. Right. Like the, yeah. To me, a linguistic profile has to have some other counterpart. It's not a vacuum. It's like, it's not a, you're not able to find all these idiosyncratic or cultural definitions in a document and have that be enough. You have to have something that is like, it's the lock, but where's your key for it? Yeah. And we're, and we're, we're making it really simplified right now. It gets Mm -hmm. even more complicated than this. So there are things, you know, you, you might be at home thinking right now, well, then I could write a letter that would use the idiosyncrat, you know, the idiosyncrasies of, you know, a, a Houston, Texas dialect. And I could then fool, you know, 80% of people to think that I'm from Texas, you know? Yeah, except for profilers who would know you're faking it. Well, so that's that's the thing, right? right? I mean, there, are, yeah. there are other parts of your language. So the you could actually do, it's called a, it's called a Q-sums analysis. But what it does essentially is it takes the cumulative, it looks at every single sentence and it basically plots out on the sentence, where do you put your nouns, your, you know, your verbs, your adverbs, your whatever, right? Your connective, it essentially takes all of your connective words. So the, and, or, uh, you know, our, stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. It stuff looks you don't at, pay any attention to. Exactly. It plots where those are within the sentence and how often you use each one over the sentence. And from that, it essentially creates a linguistic almost it's not a fingerprint because it's not. Again, it depends on the statistical certainty that you can create from a large data set, but it really does allow you to do that analysis where you can actually say if an author, you know, so the famous example of this for recent time is finding out that J.K. Rowling wrote um, that other novel that she did under the pseudonym. Yes, yes, the mysteries. Very good, yes. by the way. Yeah. yeah. So, so that was that was proven through a linguistic analysis. Actually, that they they found that it was her writing style, essentially. Which is fascinating, right? I yeah. mean, because you basically it's not like a fingerprint, but it's almost the same. You can't fake it. Like you can't cheat it. And the more you try and cheat it, the more you give yourself away. Right. Exactly. So, what really seals this case, though? is David Kaczynski being a great person. Well, and his his wife. And his wife being able to Vigilant being like, hey, sweetheart, I know, you know, we haven't been together all that long and 
you love your brother and are constantly worried about him and his welfare. But you want to sit down? Yeah, I think he is the Unabomber. So this is a conversation. Do you and not- Katie ever have something like that? Has she ever come to you and been like, Marie scares me and here's why. <laughs> no, nothing yet. Nothing I'm going to tell you about. All right. So okay. this is from, this is from prisoner of rage. Mm-hmm. And I, I again cannot speak highly enough of this long form article. So quote, David Kaczynski read the manifesto and with growing alarm began a private inquiry comparing the document with his brother's old letters and essays. He saw striking similarities in the prose style and the anti-technology content. He had already begun thinking about the locales of Unabom explosions and how similar they were to the places where his brother had lived or studied. By February, David, after agonizing over his findings, had turned to the FBI. Mm. Agents searching a shed at the old Kaczynski home in Lombard found matches, traces of gunpowder, and other compounds like those used in the earliest Unabom explosions in the Chicago area in 78, 79, and 80. Wanda Kaczynski knew nothing about all this. She had just sold the home in Lombard for $100,000 and had moved to Schenectady to be near David. The county truck trunk is an unpaved road that snakes south out of Lincoln, turns east and rises up into the high country towards Stemple Pass, which cuts through the Rocky Mountains at 6,373 feet. Five miles from town, just short of the pass, a muddy side road branches off up a hillside and disappears into the dense aspen and juniper woods. That's where the men went. They might have been taken for hunters if anyone had noticed them out in the snow. They had guns and binoculars, and they moved cautiously, like stalkers. They had rented rooms at a hotel in town in February, but people had been too nosy, and they had moved to two cabins on a ridge up near the pass. Only Butch Garing, who lived up there, knew who they were, and he had been sworn to secrecy. For 18 days they watched, peering down through the winter woods with their binoculars and telescopes. Elk and deer and once a cougar crossed their lenses, but by late March they had not seen the mountain man. They knew he hmm. often stayed in for weeks, but they had begun to wonder. Mr. Garing was sent to check. He and a forest ranger confirmed that the hermit had not slipped away. Waco and Ruby Ridge praged on the watchers' minds. Mm. They wanted mm-hmm. no blunders, no needless violence, but their force was growing. Up to 50 men were holed up in the area, and secrecy could not be assured indefinitely. They picked a cold, overcast day, April 3rd. Showers of snow and sleet fell from time to time. A mountain wind moaned and lifted the pine boughs. Canyon Creek gurgled with the spring melt. They formed a great circle, moving down the hillside and up the muddy road. Mr. Gehring went along. As they drew near, they came across a shed where the carcasses of several animals had been dressed and hung out to dry. Nearer still, a plot of ground lay cleared for a garden, enclosed by a tall wire fence to keep out the deer. A ring of cold stones marked a campfire cookery. The cabin, with a steep roof of green roof of green tar paper, was a crude wooden shack. Its reddish brown walls faded by many winters, a rustic coarseness against the gnarled bark of the woods. It was impossible to see in. Two small windows were set up high to catch the light, but keep out prying eyes. A jumble of bottles and cans lay heaped like a medieval midden against the cabin door. The door itself was hinged and fitted with a cast for a padlock, useful for locking up when the mountain man was away. But he was here now, silent inside, his door secured by a deadbolt. They used a little ruse. Mr. Gehring shouted, something about the ranger needing help to fix the line between their adjoining properties. The door opened and a shaggy man stepped out. They took his arms from both sides. Ted, one of them said, we need to talk. 
end quote. And that's how they caught him. Oh my God. They got him. That's 17 years later, man. Right? Crazy. That is, that's stunning. And it's stunning too. Cause I mean, imagine the fear. I mean, this person is proficient at booby traps, at bombing, you know, the entire, that entire area, 50 people, right. Had probably were on, you know, constant lookout for tripwires and for what, what they could have found or what he could have done in the meantime. That's, oh, and it's just this tiny little, tiny little place in the forest. He ends up, he mends, he ends up, they, they go in, they get his stuff. They find a bomb there ready to go. They, the cabin itself gets seized yeah. And they're going to use it in trial. And Ted decides he, he would just rather be yeah. guilty. Yeah. You know, um, but he ends up. It's just, it's just crazy. It's a crazy story, right? Even, even afterwards. I mean, you know, again, kind of the part that's interesting for us is the science and the idea of him and how the bombings happened in this person transforming from an academic mm-hmm. into someone who's using their knowledge for evil. You know, but really he ends up. Yeah. After the arrest, they just, they find so many things in the cabin that point to it being him. Again, they find a copy of the manifesto, (laughs) you know, in his cabin, they find, I mean, comical Mm -hmm. amounts. So they find, you know, stuff to make bombs and things. So he ends up, uh, he ends up pleading guilty in April of uh, 1996. Um, at first they are, or rather he gets indicted in April of 96 he ends up um, he ends up being declared competent to stand trial, despite his defenders wanting to say mm-hmm. that he is insane. It's something that he really does not want to have. Right. Um, he says that it's a political diagnosis because they don't, you know, again, his whole worldview is, of course, mm-hmm. what, it, what I'm doing looks insane to those who are part of an insane society. You know, um, it's kind right. of crazy. So he ends up takes he ends up accepting life imprisonment without the chance of parole. I mean pleads guilty in in 1998. So, um he then actually says that he wants to re- withdraw his request, but uh the judge says no, you can't and it is upheld in higher courts. So, uh in 2006, the judge declares that items from the cabin have to be sold in an internet auction. Um yes. And uh Yes. Yeah. So it, it goes towards fifty million in restitution that Burrell had awarded to his victims. So his personal items were, were yes. everything else, right? It's it's just it's just wacky. But I mean, the idea, the idea. So there's a couple different things. There's there's a um, there's an exhibit, an FBI exhibit, FBI. Um, okayed exhibit that happened where it had his actual cabin. Um, the it's called Inside Today's FBI exhibit uh, in Washington D.C. and it has um, his man, some of his writings, some of his weaponry, a uh, exterior of the cabin. So it has the actual either the actual cabin or something that is that is to to scale of his cabin, right? So it's like you can go to this exhibit 
and you can actually see the scope and the size. You can actually look at this stuff or you can actually bid on his personal effects, which I'm sorry, that's gruesome. That's like, to me, it's like, I think that they should, yes, I think that his victims deserve restitution. But the idea that you are going to, like his birth certificate, his school records, diplomas, right? Uh, doctorate diplomas, um, all these things, his, like all the stuff that was his personal effects is kind of like, I don't know. I think that that's sort of ghoulish. Again, I think that that's sort of this, this, you're, he's a fetish. You're going to bid on these things and you're going to, like you're bidding against someone else for something that is, Basically, it's just almost like yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's it's this, it's the ways. part. I mean, listen, I right? I love collecting things. It's like a big. It's actually like it's something I wish I didn't like as much as I do because it it just takes up a lot of space, you know. And it's a lot of the stuff is stupid and whatever, right? But anyways, some of the things that we collect, at least me and my wife, are old pieces of I guess I would call them like quackery memorabilia, right, or fraud memorabilia. So you know, we have a we have a um, we have a, a an animal mm-hmm. or quote unquote an animal. It's like a not really paper mache, but it's made out of old fish guts and skin and stuff, and the head of a raccoon. Mm. Yeah, that was yeah no no that is what, it was okay, it was sorry. part of a sideshow yeah. that traveled the country, and it was it was said that it was a mermaid, you know, or no the my, the one I have. So they had a mermaid head, and I didn't buy that because it was too expensive. The one I have is a uh, it's supposedly a little champ, uh, the Lake Champlain monster. You know, or we have, you know, we have books on, I mean, we collect books obviously for the show, but you know, that kind of stuff I can see. So I can see, I can understand thinking that it is cool to see that stuff, but when it's a linked to something horrible like this, it's, it's, you almost think it should be in a museum. (laughs) Well, I think the naturalization of it in a lot of ways too, like they also, one of the things that I think is especially interesting that they auctioned off was a hooded sweatshirt one of his hooded sweatshirts. And I think the icon of him in the glasses from that, from that one picture has been reproduced in so many different mediums in so many different kind of ironic hipster takes on it. But it, 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 it sort of just perpetuates this whole um, yeah. mythos of him that it, that furthers you away from the fact that he was a killer. The fact that he was, uh, he was a terrorist. He was as, he was as bad as any other terrorist or any other, any other um, fascist thinking um, crazy person out there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> to be honest, right? I mean, but. No, yeah. But seriously, I mean, come on, like that's. There's no there like because to me, I'm always like, oh, you know, there is something there is something interesting about him. And there is something that I don't want to like. I don't want to I don't want to be interested in. But, you know, again, like there's something about his discipline. There's something about his. Well, I think the fact I, that he was such an intellectual. I there's think, all of these things that I think it's that are interesting. I think. Well, yeah, I think it's also important, though, to. I think it's also though it is important though to study these things to to know to not I mean to learn from them 
right? It's yeah. Agreed. So I'm I'm with you though. I understand what you're saying. Wholeheartedly agree. I just don't think that we <laughs> no, should. No, if they're bidding. in a museum, like we should not be, we should not be bidding in, on one another. If they're in a museum another, and yes, the families get museum. a cut of the museum proceedings, that is mm-hmm. great. Do you know what I mean? That that to me makes perfect sense. Yes. If there is a charity or something set up to help the victims of him, that makes perfect sense. But to share these items or to sell them out there, and again, like you're saying, to almost make out of him a myth cult figure is probably not super great. No, and that's that's really what that's what the case is. What's and happened? I mean, what you, when you compare him against other bombers of the time, like. I think, like, I was looking at one article in The Atlantic called, It took 17 years to catch the unit bomber, but five days to find C- uh, Caesar Sayoc, who was the bomber just recently out of Florida. And it's like, he, you know, you read that and you're like, man, that's because nobody touches the Unabomber. Look how good this guy was at what he did, right? But it's also like... uh I would say that FBI has become that much more sophisticated from, from learning a lot from, from, from the case, from that, right. From b- being able to understand these things as a group and as a, and as an institution. And that's, that's more what's important than, than again, than sort of glamorizing it in and idealizing. So idealizing Kaczynski it. gets sentenced to eight life sentences without the mm-hmm. possibility of parole. And so he, he currently is in ADX Florence, <sighs> which is a supermax prison. In Colorado, Florence, yeah. Colorado. Supermax. Oh. I'm going to be there next week, yeah, by the way. Yeah, you want me to stop by? I don't know if that's I that place that so. you just do it. You know, you just I pull don't in think so. With some Chick-fil-A, you know, a frozen know frosted you... lemonade. Uh, for him. Dur- it's interesting, actually. During his imprisonment, he became friendly with um, Ramsey Youssef and then Timothy McVeigh, who are the perpetrators of the... so. Ramsey Youssef, Interesting. Uh, the, the 93 World Trade Center bombings, yeah. and then Timothy McVeigh, obviously the Oklahoma City bombings. He also, um, yeah. he does still correspond with people. So people still send him letters and things. He's still alive, yes. of course. He's 76 years old. And um, some of his, his papers, his writings and things and his letters are part of the um, Labadee Collection at the University of Michigan Library. So um, they're in the special collections area. You can see his publications, his clippings, his his letters and things that he sent out over uh, since his arrest with over 400 people. Those people's um, the people's identities will remain sealed until 2049, actually. Although Ted tried to. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's they're they're sealed, obviously, for for obvious reasons, right? But, I mean, a lot of it you'd imagine is reporters and people trying to understand mm-hmm. him more and, and things like that. But, of course, also probably some, I mean, all these people get weirdos that write to them in prison and, you know, fall in love and whatever. Maybe Juan Ariola still sending him letters. But this is the quote that he said. He was asked if he was afraid of losing his mind in prison. And he said, quote, no, what worries me is that I might, in a sense, adapt to this environment and come to be comfortable here and not resent it anymore. And I'm afraid that as my years go by that I may forget. I may begin to lose my memories of the mountains and the woods, and that's what really worries me, that I might lose those memories and lose that sense of contact with wild nature in general. But I am not afraid that you're going to break my spirit, end quote. So that is the end of the Unabomber series. It was, it was a lot of stuff, Marie. 
That is a lot of stuff. That's amazing. I wonder, like, I'm one of my one of my thoughts that goes through my head is like, we will have something like the Unabomber sometime again, and I just kind of wonder what it would be like. Who, what that is like, because the Unabomber was so unique and so different for the time, and was again just sort of this outlier. You know what? What's, well, what's, what would be the next? What's still, the next thing that would I think be is like really that? interesting with it's. It's very similar, I think, to – so there's this thing – there's this idea that goes around out there, and it's we talk, a lot of true crime shows have talked about it a lot, you know, the idea being mm-hmm. are we in a period now where being, say, a serial killer is impossible because of the way that society has changed? Yeah, no, no. I don't think so, right? <laughs> no. But the idea is no. that, you know, you can't pick up hitchhikers no. anymore – People are not as anonymous as they once were. It's harder to be off the grid, yada, yada, all that kind of stuff. But I think, I think though that really what we have seen is that just like son of Sam was kind of the, the referential Mm -hmm. point for America in kind of the seventies on serial killers, Mm -hmm. Unabomber and then Oklahoma city were really the, the era of, Mm -hmm. They were kind of the crescendo moments, or I don't want to say the crescendo necessarily, of domestic terrorism. For domestic terrorism. And then we kind of have been through a yeah. period where the threat has really been foreign terrorism. You know, obviously the World Trade Center, mm-hmm. everything else. And I think, mm-hmm. but I think that, honestly, I think Charlottesville will be looked at as a, as one of those moments too. And I think that, also, mm-hmm. we are going to look at, mm-hmm. I, I don't think the bad times are done. You know what I mean? With that kind of stuff. So I think, no, they never are. But I oh, think they never you know, are. we do yeah. go through these periods where it's kind of, you know, super violence and then regular violence, you know? So I, I think that we're probably, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, I agree with you, though. I think something will happen, but I wonder what it is. And um Yeah. What's just so hard to wrap your mind around? Because I think that's one of the things that that is quote unquote admirable or interesting about about the Unabombers. That is the uniqueness of that story. And it's like, well, that story is it's not unique in that it it will it has happened before and it will happen again. But that's you know what I mean. That that's like what is the again. What iteration or permutation would that take? It would it be a cyber attack. Would it be? Would it be? You know, what does that look like? And that's what I'm. I kind of keep thinking about. And with that amount of difference and discipline and destructiveness comes together. It's it. It's inevitable, but it's also like, I don't know. It's impo- To me, it's like that's that's almost what I would hope. And I'm sure that they are. Like our federal institutions are are geared up to, to well, you know what else too? And so I think this, hmm. this kind of is off track on that, on that thought, but this is something I wanted to bring up. Well, yeah, it's just a terrible, terrible thought. Yeah. What the hell Marie, you know, I think part of the reason why the Unabomber, why I think the Unabomber is so fascinating for so many people. And at least for me too, why it's fascinating is he's kind of the, He's like the evil, he's like the evil scientist that gets his revenge in a way. You know what I mean? Like the idea of, 
the idea of people thinking, you know, like let's say like the Punisher, right? So my Katie and I were watching the Punisher this afternoon on mm-hmm. Netflix. And like, why does a character like that become popular? Cause he's a terrible Ooh. person. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just mm-hmm. a piece of crap. Right. Um, even the comics, mm-hmm. he's so unlikable. Mm-hmm. Why does a character like that become so popular in the mod, in the, in the kind of viewpoint of the people? And it's because you think, or even say Dexter, right? You think that these people are, they're doing, Darth Vader. they're doing terrible things, but you know, well, Darth Vader is kind of the premier <laughs> villain. These are like, they're, but he's still doing terrible things, but that's, but that's what I'm saying though. So Darth Vader is either, it's easier to see him as a villain pure, right? Whereas the Punisher, um, says someone who's not really a big, you know, Star Wars fan, but that's okay. I'll get into okay. it in a second. Anyways, what I'm saying is you can see why they're doing the things they're doing. And there are times uh-huh. where you think that it, it, it keys into a type of power fulfillment fantasy that I think everyone has, right? Everyone who is smart and not necessarily strong has had a bully or somebody, you know, punch you in the face or you know, break your glasses or mm-hmm. whatever. And you've thought, you know, mm-hmm. well, you're big and strong, but I'm smart. And I'm going to think of something that I'm going to get you with, you know, with how smart I am. Right. It's, it's like the Riddler in Batman. You know, why is the Riddler mm-hmm. such a fascinating mm-hmm. character? It's because mm-hmm. he's using his, he's using his brain Intellect. to attack and hurt Batman. Right. He could never beat Batman in a fight, right. but he can create a riddle or a clue or some kind of machine or something to, to stump. And then, humiliate Batman. Right. And so I think for a lot of people, that's kind of what the Unabomb represents as well as being that kind of idea again of that going back to nature. A lot of us see technology as being bad, you know, as being not inherently good as we've been told it is. And I think he's a vigilante, right? It's what people think. He's a vigilante. That type of thing. Yeah. I think, so I think the thing that seems if I look at it, is that that's interesting is that amount of control, that amount of discipline, that amount of being able to focus on something, you know, on this very singular level for so long that that's what you achieve. That's your achievement. You know what I mean? There's nothing that's, there's nothing that is um, auxiliary in his life, right? There's nothing that's, that's a luxury. There's nothing that's, that's, that it, Everything is faced to that one point, and that's it. He's given up family. He's given up. He's given up. You know, comforts. He's given up. You know, <laughs> excuse my French. Modern, um, modern society. You know, I, anything. I, I wonder though if in prison, like, I, mm-hmm. I, I bet there are like weird situations though where he's like, you know, he's walking back to his cell, or I'm sure he doesn't get allowed out of his mm-hmm. cell normally. But I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. he he's sitting there reading this philosophy or, you know, reading Joseph Conrad for the thousandth time or whatever. And he hears something mm-hmm. funny on TV and he'll kind of like mm-hmm. chortle, you know, he'll do like the, you know, like, you know, like the breathing out laugh thing. And then he kind of like looks around like, did anyone, did anyone see me just laughing at the Big Bang Theory? Right. You think he's laughing? You know? Yeah, he's laughing <laughs> at the Big Bang. He yeah. loves the Big he's, Bang you know Theory. I, mean? I, I bet there are situations oh, where, because he's in prison now, so I guarantee he, what else do you have but those, those, you know, what else do you have in prison but the kind of technology kind of things to get your mind off of the terrible place you're in? 
So yeah. it's kind of a very totally. fitting. Totally. I mean, it's a it's a very fitting, and I think a very well deserved punishment. I think it's. I don't think oh, there's yeah. anything better than. I don't think there's anything that the victims the could hope for more than the the Unabomber in a no. concrete gray facility. You know. Agreed. Anyways, agreed. Away from nature, yeah. which is almost punishment enough. Well, not to the families, but to me, that's a fitting, at least a fitting yeah. part of it. And that's and that's the end. So, dear listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It was two hours long, so this is a hell of an episode. Oh my god! Uh, what we've done, Marie? Now five hours on the Unabomber, maybe six. Holy smokes! That's manifesto length. Amazing. Uh, We're on a watch list, listeners. If you enjoy, nice if you enjoy these long form series, please let us know. Um, this <laughs> yes. one took a lot of research, and we're super proud of it. And um, and yeah, as always, this is a Damn It Chibi Productions, all rights reserved, uh, and all that stuff. So, Marie, good night. As always, it's been a pleasure. Good night. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a Damn It Chippy production. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.